ecological values incorporate human values. I think there are four very important movements in the ecology field. One is Gaia, which says that the whole earth is a living system. The second is deep ecology, which says that it is not only a living system, the planet earth, but everything in this system has intrinsic value. So you see a tree. It is good not because it gives fruit to human beings or wood to build a house or shade to sit under it, but tree is good in itself even if, not only even if, there is no need to think that tree is good because it is a useful commodity for human beings. So that way, deep ecology believes that everything, rivers, mountains, soil, trees, forests, animals, birds, insects, butterflies, flowers, everything has value in itself, intrinsic value, not valuable because it is a resource for human beings. The uh, shallow ecology, the difference between deep ecology and shallow ecology, the shallow ecology or the uh, techno-fixer, fixing environmentalists would say the environment is there. We must make good management. We must make good use of this environment. It is good for us, so we must conserve it for human beings. We should conserve it for our children and grandchildren. Now that is a human-centered approach. Deep ecology says that think of whole earth having life in itself and value in itself. Whether human beings have any use for it or not is totally irrelevant. So that is a second very important movement. The third one is if everything has intrinsic value, how do we relate with nature? What is our relationship with trees, rivers, mountains, earth, land, soil, flowers, crops, animals, everything? What is our relationship? That is, the movement is permaculture. Permaculture is a developing idea, thought, that everything, what, how we relate with nature should have sustainability inbuilt in it. So we must not take something from nature which is going to bring an end to nature, like we are destroying rainforests, like we are uh, destroying rivers. That is, cannot be sustainable. The way we use resources of the earth 
for human consumption is not sustainable. So we must develop a new kind of relationship with the earth which is sustainable, which is permanent. So we must create a culture which is permanent, which is sustainable, which can last forever and ever. For generations, I mean American Indians used to say human beings should not do anything without thinking that how their action will affect the seventh generation. Not your children, not your grandchildren, but seventh generation. That's a long view. We nowadays politicians think only of five years, next election. Now, the ecological worldview is to think in long terms, not how quickly I can get rich and be comfortable and everything convenient for me. I have a big car and a big house and this and that and so on, so that I can live comfortably. What happens to the generations to come is not my problem. They will look after themselves. That is the modern uh, current attitude. Everything what was in the, uh, in the past was all underdeveloped, undeveloped, backward, primitive. We have developed this culture and civilization and now we must m make use of land, rivers, forests, the whole nature for the benefit of humankind. Now that is shallow ecology. That is um, unsustainable thinking. So the idea of permaculture is to have this philosophy in the back of your mind that everything and anything we do should have a permanence inbuilt in it. At the moment we take something, it's produced, we use it, we throw it away. There is no permanence in it. You build a car so that in two years time it will be out of fashion and you have a new car. You build furniture, chairs like this, what is their life? Five years, ten years, you throw, throw it away, make new chairs as ugly as this one. <laughs> Whereas in the old times, people built a chair, they took time. They took care. The beauty and utility were not opposed to each other. So they made a beautiful chair which will last and the older it gets, better value it contains. Older it gets, more beautiful it looks. So you go in an antique shop and you see an old chair and compare that chair with this one. That looks beautiful, attractive and has greater value than even when it was made. That is the idea of permaculture. The fourth movement is bioregion or bioregionalism. They call it bioregion. At the moment our economics and politics is based on centralization. Big cities, importing, exporting, things from anywhere. So if you, uh, if you look at your dining table, at dinner table, and see food, butter may have come from New Zealand, cheese might have come from France, Wine must have, might have come from, um, from California. Everything comes from everywhere. The clothes you are wearing might have, might have been made in Hong Kong. The book you are reading, reading might have been printed in Singapore. So we are spreading our wings all over the world. The cost of it is enormous. 
because you have to export and import. So ships have to run, aeroplanes have to run, the oil has to be consumed. The amount of middlemen in between uh, the producer and the consumer are a long list, long queue of people between who are making uh, money out of nothing, just transacting from here to there and in, in doing that they are earning their living. Now this cannot be an ecological, environmentally sound, sustainable, Gaia-oriented, deep ecology-oriented, permaculture-oriented way of life. So, bio-region, a region which is biologically self-contained. So when you buy food, you say, where was it grown? Where have these vegetables in Marks and Spencer or Sainsbury's? When you go to buy or Safeway, where was it grown? Kent? How was it transported? Lorries polluting the air, shaking the villages, building motorways. Why can't we have cabbage or cauliflower grown in Avon, in Bristol? What's so special about cauliflower from Kent? This doesn't taste better. Why you have to build these Sainsbury's and, uh, and Tesco's and Safeways to eat cauliflower uh, grown in Lincolnshire? Why can't we have cauliflower, lettuce, cucumbers, whatever is grown in Avon, in Bristol, in Bath, in uh, local area? So that is bio-region. You, you wear shoes. Where are they made? You wear clothes. Where are they made? Where this, was chair, uh, this table was made? Somewhere far away in Midlands factory and then transported here. One, the author of Small is Beautiful, this book, E.F. Schumacher, was telling, it is in this book, he has related this, um, narrated this story. He was standing outside London and he saw a lorry full of biscuits produced in London going to Manchester. And then five minutes later, he saw another lorry coming from Manchester full of biscuits. So, Schumacher said, biscuits must increase their nourishing value, their nutritious value, nutrition value, by transporting, by being on the motorway. Otherwise, why human beings will take a lorry full of biscuits produced in London to Manchester and lorry full of biscuits produced in Manchester to London? So the biscuits must become more nutritious by being on the motorway. This must be the reason. So the stupidity of our unecological, ungayan lifestyle is like that. So, the fourth movement of ecology, of environment, is to look at your own region and, and your neighborhood and your village. And if you have a craftsman or a craftswoman making nice shoes or chairs or tables or a, nice, a good builder who lives next door to you, why to go to these big building companies like, what are they called, big building companies? Lang. Uh, yeah. I see some signs of big building firms. Exactly. Some, I don't even know what those big building companies are. Why not have your builder living in your village, in your neighborhood, in your town, coming and building the house? 
yourself. So that is bioregion. Concern for your locality. Concern for your neighborhood. Concern for your village. Concern for your town. It is wonderful to go traveling, looking at other cultures, learning from those cultures. But it is not necessary to always import and export things which have no particular importance, but just because uh, Korean labor is cheap, so you import a car from Korea. What's wrong with the English car? Why Japanese car should be sold in England and English car in Japan? Why um, Californian wine in France and French wine in California? What's so great difference between... I mean, why not French people enjoying their French wine? They have enjoyed it for centuries. Suddenly, in the last 20, 30, 40 years, when transport and oil has become cheap, we export and import wine from California, from New Zealand, from Australia, everywhere. Local wine, local cheese, local butter, local shoes, that is bioregionalism. And then you go to France from California and taste a different kind of wine. Then you really enjoy the taste. Otherwise it becomes monoculture. Wherever you go, architecture is same, drink is same, Coca-Cola, Pepsi-Cola, whatever it is, same. A food is same, chain of restaurants same, hotel same, intercontinental, wherever you go, same kind of hotel. What is so boring? This our, our modern industrial civilization is so boring, isn't it? Look at this chair, symbol of this civilization, so boring to look at, so boring to sit on it. Why not have some time spent in making a beautiful chair, which is particular, like they used to have Windsor chair in England. And you went to Windsor and you appreciated and so looked at it, Windsor chair. You went to Scotland, was something different there. They wore some different dress, different kind of clothes. You went to Wales, you went to north of England, you went to Kent, you went to France. Everything was different and it was a, like going, the world was like a great garden. And in every country, different cultures were like different flowers. And you enjoyed that. Now you get one yellow um, flower everywhere. Wherever you go, one garden, one yellow flower, nothing else, no color. So that is the monoculture of our modern, industrial, unecological, unenvironmental civilization. This cannot last. Like there was a time, age of agriculture, and then people got a bit fed up with agriculture and they said we need to have something industrial. So we had age of industry, industrial revolution. Now we are passing that, I hope, that industrial age is passing and we are coming to a, a new age, an age of ecology, age of uh, environment where local variety and local beauty and local speciality will be appreciated, whether it is in architecture, or in food, or in clothing, or anything else. So that is the fourth strand of ecology movement. So Gaia, one, whole Earth is one planet, planet home, our Earth, one world, not division, not separation, 
like an astronaut going into the space and looking down at the earth, Gaia. And they looked at this beautiful floating work of art. The greatest work of art is this earth. And only Almighty God could make such beautiful work of art. And no divisions there. It is not that these are human beings and these are animals and these are rivers. Earth is one. It's not that it's black and it's white. It's not that it's Jews and it's Arabs fighting each other. This is not Christians and this is not Muslims. Earth is one. All the differences and diversity is beautiful. And we don't have to fight because we share one home, one planet home, one earth. So that is the first. Living earth is Gaia. Second, to, to remind you, is deep ecology. Everything in this, on this earth has intrinsic value. Everything is beautiful and has its place and we must respect it. So you have cultures, you respect. So there is no need to fight, have fights and quarrels. No need to have wars. No need for Gulf Wars or uh, attacking Kuwait and uh, invading um, uh, um, this country or that country. We can all share together as one earth. So intrinsic value of everything, deep ecology. Then our relationship with the earth and nature and environment of sustainability, of permanence, permaculture. And then within that one great whole earth, our planet home, we have a small home. And that is our region where we live. And as much as possible, we get our necessities, our requirements fulfilled from that local area. And only as, a, as icing on the cake, as a matter of taste and enjoyment, occasionally you may have mangoes from, from India or lychees from China or, or wine from France or something, occasionally. But in the main, we should live by the local produce and locally made things and that is environmentally, ecologically more sustainable. So these are the four movements. Now for me this has been from the very childhood because I was born uh, in India in a small village in Sri Dungagad, Rajasthan, northwest of India. And I experienced that, what I'm talking about, bioregion. We had everything locally made. And when I grew up, I can remember the culture and the variety and the, the people, the way they lived. And there was, no, uh, there was no electricity in our village. There was not uh, big motorways and things like that. We used simple candles and uh, lanterns and, and some, some kerosene oil and still what wonderful culture! What wonderful culture! My mother used to make skirt or blouse or a shawl and she would sit and have mirrors and embroider them with various different colors, embroidery, mirror on the, on the shawl or on the skirt. It may take six months or a year to make one skirt but that one skirt would last for life. And then that one piece of shawl or one piece of material what she made can be inherited by children. So you made things with that kind of persistence, that kind of interest, that kind of imagination, that kind of cultural 
uh, sort of richness that it lasted forever and ever. Now, people think we don't have time. We don't have time. We are poor with time. We have got motorways, we have got uh, cars, we have got aeroplanes, we have got jumbo jets, we have got everything. But we haven't got time. My mother used to have a lot of time. She used to say, when God made time, He made plenty of it. She would never say time is running out. She would say, time is coming. There is a tomorrow. Time is coming. I can finish the skirt tomorrow. I can continue to do it. I can make this shawl tomorrow. So time is coming. Time is not running out. If you look back yesterday, which went, you are anxious. You think, oh, time has gone. And time is going. Our watch is going, running out. Time running out. Now, my mother's philosophy was, time is coming. And that way, she developed a, a sort of thinking which, which made a great impression on me. But as I said, it is important to, and it is also very good, to go out in the world. And I went out in the world, but not by aeroplane. My first journey was not quickly getting there somewhere. My first journey was to walk from India to England and to America, apart from the Atlantic, when I sailed in a boat. But uh, up to France and then with a break in the, uh, in the channel. So I started from the grave of Mahatma Gandhi, walking, and every day, 10 miles, 20 miles, 15 miles, 18 miles, whatever. Starting in the morning, a little rucksack on the back. And when I was starting, my teacher in India said, you are going to walk. This is the first time you are going out of India. I want to give you an advice. That is, go abroad, around the world, walking, but take no money with you. I said, no money? I might want to write a postcard home or uh, something. Sometimes I'm hungry or thirsty, I want to buy a cup of tea. No money at all? He said, no. No money at all. Because if you are going and walking, you arrive in a village in the evening. You are tired. You go to a bed and breakfast or a hotel to sleep. You, you are hungry. You go to a restaurant to eat and you don't have chance to really meet people. But if you have no money, you will be forced to find someone to give you bed for the night, give you hospitality. And when you are meeting people, you will find real culture, real wisdom, real tradition by which people live, and you will experience it. Otherwise, the culture of bed and breakfast and hotels and restaurants is same all over the world. But when you go and live in somebody's house, and when you have no money, you are truly humble. You cannot say, oh, I have plenty of money, I can do what I like, I can buy this, I can buy that, I can fly there, I can go there. When you have no money, you have no judgment. You are humble. It is sometimes easier to give and more difficult to receive.
Vinoba said, my teacher said, it is easier to give, more difficult to receive. Because in receiving, you have to forgo your ego. You have to say, will it be possible, your hands spread out, will it be possible for you to let me stay in your house for the night? Will it be possible for you that I can join you and share your meal with you tonight? You have to have a tremendously egoless, humble attitude. And if somebody says, oh, what are you doing here? Why do you want to come and stay in my house? Go away. You go away without cursing, without being upset, without being angry. And that's how I started walking. And when I started walking, without money, although my teacher Vinoba said that you go like this, but my friends and relatives, they thought Vinoba and I, both of us were mad. And at the border of Pakistan, when I arrived, some of my friends and family people came and they said that you are going to Pakistan. It is a Muslim enemy country. You are not going to be easily able to find food and shelter there. Without shelter you can even sleep outdoors. But at least you should have some food with you. So I have brought some packets of food. Please take this with you for a few days. It will sustain you and nourish you. And I looked at it and I thought for a minute and I said, if I am true to Vinoba's advice, I cannot do it. These packets of food are packets of mistrust. What it means is that I have fear of Pakistani Muslims. I have fear that they are not going to feed me. I can't trust them. How long will I survive with this kind of attitude? Thank you, but no thank you. Let me go. If I die, let me die without food. Anyway, this person who brought food for me was in tears. And she said, all right, you are mad and crazy and stupid. Carry on. Go. Wish you well. I went into Pakistan, crossed the border, and I arrived through passport control, through the custom control, and I come, and what I see, to my total amazement, there is a young man standing there with a garland of flowers, saying, are you Satish Kumar, who is going to Moscow, Paris, London, Washington, on foot? How did you know? Because I wrote to no one. I communicated with nobody. I knew nobody in Pakistan. He said, few days ago, a traveler passed you as you were walking in India from between Delhi and the border. And he, by the way, mentioned that this person going to these big capitals, capitals, nuclear capitals, for peace, as a pilgrimage. And I got so inspired by it, that I came day before yesterday in search of you. I came yesterday asking these custom and passport control people and police, has anybody walking past there? No. And I came today. I'm so lucky to find you today. And I want you to come with me and stay in my house. Now, five minutes ago, 
my friend was saying that please take some food with you. You may not find anyone to feed you in Pakistan. It's an enemy country. It's a Muslim country. And India is a Hindu country. And five minutes later, I meet this man. And this time I was in tears. I could not believe. Anyway, he said, I have come in my car. I live 16 miles away in Lahore, the city of Lahore. Please come with me and be my guest. So I said, you are very kind. But I have made this vow that I must walk. Every step. No lift. Only walking. But please give me your address. And I will come in the evening to your house. And he said, but you might meet somebody else on the way. And they might take you as, uh, as their guest. I'll miss you and lose you again. So I said, no, no. You are the first person to invite. We will come to your place. So he thought for a minute. He said, oh, you are carrying this rucksack on your back. You are walking. You want to travel light. You don't have to carry this rucksack. Why don't you give your rucksack to me? And I will take it in my car. So I'll be assured that at least to collect your rucksack, you will come to my house. So I gave my rucksack to him. So this is the human richness that you find when you go in a traditional, ecological way, traveling. Seeing the world, embracing the world, Seeing the whole earth as one earth is beautiful culture without turning the whole earth into one monoculture. That is what I learned. So that day I thought, now I'm no longer an Indian. Because if I came here in Pakistan as an Indian, I will meet a Pakistani. I'm no longer a Hindu. If I come as a Hindu, I will meet a Muslim. I'm no longer a capitalist or socialist. If I come as a capitalist, I meet a socialist or vice versa. If I come as a black man, I meet a white man. If I am prejudiced with my own narrow thinking, I will see the other person in that different category. From today, I am only a human being. And wherever I go, I will meet human beings everywhere. Only. And that attitude to me is compatible. These are the two ends of the same story. On the one hand, you are living locally, loving your local culture, your home, your village, your community, your land, your river, your trees, your valleys, your bit of ocean. You love it. That is very important. And you don't import and export everywhere. But on the other hand, you see the whole earth as one and you are a world citizen. There is no narrowness there. There, was, there. there is a very famous ecological sort of phrase which I like very much is think globally, act locally. So when you have in your mind, you can embrace the whole universe, the cosmic view, the cosmic vision we should hold in our hands. There is no differentiation, no racism, no um, sexism, no classism, no nationalism, nothing. No speciesism. Nothing. 
you have a universal world view, cosmic world view. Think globally, but act locally. You cannot save the whole world. You can save a little patch of your land where you are living. If that patch of land is organically farmed, if that patch of land is taken care of, if that patch of land is loved and looked after, and each one of us look after that patch of land, then every patch of land in the world is looked after. So we have to act locally. That is bioregion. That local action makes you connected with the world. And so my journey from Pakistan, I carried on through Afghanistan, through Iran, through the Soviet Union. Now I tell you one story in the Soviet Union, former Soviet Union. In fact, in Armenia, I was walking and there were two young women met me and we started talking. I had learned a bit of Russian and when they learned that uh, I was going for peace as a peace pilgrimage, she said, why don't you come and have a cup of tea in our factory because we were in this, as we were passing, in this tea factory. So we went in and sat down, started to have a cup of tea, talked, and suddenly one of these two women rushed out of the room and said, Excuse me, I will be back in a minute. And she came back in a minute. But this time she came with four little packets of tea. And she said, I know you are walking and you want to not carry too much weight on your back, but these are very light, small packets of tea. And please don't drink this tea, it is not for you. Please give one packet of tea to the Prime Minister Premier in Moscow the second packet of tea to the president of France, the other nuclear power, the third packet of tea to the prime minister of England, and fourth packet of tea to the president of the United States of America. And please be, because I can't go to all these capitals and big places, you are going, be my messenger and tell these four great leaders that if ever you get a mad thought of pushing the nuclear button, please stop for a minute and have a fresh cup of tea <laughs> from these packets. And that will give you a moment to think that the person and people who are working on the land in tea gardens, in tea factories, have done nothing to deserve your nuclear weapons. We are not your enemies. And that will give you a pause for thought. I was so moved and so touched. And that gave me an added inspiration and energy and strength to carry on walking through snow-covered villages of Russia and through tarmac roads of Europe to take these packets of tea to the Kremlin, to the Ten Downing Strait, to Palace Elysee, 
to the White House and deliver them. So humanity is everywhere same. People always fear, oh we are fine, we are very good, we are peace loving, but these are the Russians who are warmongers, or these are the uh, Arabs who are warmongers, or are the Jews warmongers, or the Catholic warmongers, or the Protestants warmongers, or the Muslims, or the Hindus, or the Sikhs, or, or whoever, somebody else. But by going through these countries, meeting people with empty hands, empty pocket, and empty in a way inside, without prejudices, empty of prejudices inside, when you go to people you find humanity is same everywhere. And if we can trust them and trust people, there is no need for these tensions and there is no need for this greed and no need for this power-seeking that is controlling our world today. So, now I feel that after this experience my work. Uh, what I'm trying to do is to bring these ideas of one earth and yet your neighborhood in which you belong to, together. Now if you take the education system of our country, children don't get any of these values or these ideas. Education is such brainwashing, indoctrinating, materialistic, reductionist thing. You learn to read, write, arithmetic, that's it. Nothing what you read, why you read, where you read. I mean, I live in a small village. It's a beautiful village, very intact, farming community. But children of our village have to go to school 15 miles every morning. Bus takes an hour because it stops here, 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 there, 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 all the villages collecting children. One hour journey in the morning. Commuter's life from the age of 11. And then in the evening again 15 miles journey, another hour. Two hours in the bus from the age of 11 to age 16 or 18 until you do your A-levels every day. Just imagine what traumatic, unnecessary burden we put on our children. So I said, school should come to the children, not children to the school. Who, who is more important? School for the children or children for the school? So we said to the government, why don't you start and establish a secondary school in our village so that these children don't have to go because we used to have a secondary school in the village which was closed down. Oh, government was too small. Fifty children, sixty children, we cannot afford to have a school for such small number of children. We can't afford it. It's not economical. They have not read small is beautiful. So, we said if government doesn't start, we will begin. So ten years ago, with nine children to start with, because I have my own two children, and similarly, other parents were concerned that their children travelling to a school where there are no values. If the school was wonderful, everything was perfect and, and children were loved and cared and looked after and given inspiration and given um, um, idealism and values and, 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 and all those things, 
we will say that's fine. The journey of two hours in the bus is worth it. But when you come to a boring school, monotonous education, pressure, fear, fear reigns in our school. I have been to British schools, many, many schools, and I'm afraid to say that the fear children have of teachers, of headmasters, of missing the bus, failing the exams, not doing homework, being told off, being bullied, fear, fear, fear. How can you educate children in this atmosphere of fear? People say, oh, they get toughened, they get alright, they, they go through it, it's alright. But why children should be subjected to such fear? So we began the school, we called it the small school. And now we have 30 children. For the 10 years we have been running it. Where children are running the school, more or less, two teachers and 30 children. And we have part-time teachers who come from the village. Our local potter teaches pottery. Our local craftsman, wood, woodworker, chairmaker, comes and teaches woodwork. So the village has a sense of belonging with the school. And the school has a sense of belonging to the village, the community. And that way, I think we can light a candle everywhere rather than curse the darkness. So similarly, um, uh, my work uh, is to bring some of these ideas into discussion. There is no, no final answer. Nobody has answer. We have to raise questions and we have to express our concern and honestly try to find certain solutions in our own area. There is no one solution which I can say is right for everybody. But somehow, unless we begin to question our values, and that's where the title of this, this talk, Human Values, unless we start to look into the question of values, what are our values? What are the values of our society? Economic growth? Becoming more rich? Destroying the planet? Resources? Environment? If that is our sort of value system, then it is not sustainable. So we would like to create values and at least open a discussion about these values so that people think, why I am... You are a student here in the university. Why are you studying? You have to start asking this question. What is the purpose and the meaning of your study? You will get exam, you get a degree, you get a certificate, you go out, um, find a job, take a mortgage, get more money, big car, be successful, retire, have pension. That is the sort of pattern of society is laid in front of you. And everybody is expecting you to do it, follow it. If you step out of line, they will say, oh, you are a bit eccentric, or we are revolutionary, or we are a bit odd. You have to follow the pattern of the society. Everything is waiting for you. If you have illusion that you can create your own life, and you can make your own life, I'm afraid you, will, you are in for a disillusionment. Because the social pattern is laid in front of you. There is very little room for manure. You have to. I mean, how do you pay your bills if you don't have a job? Why are you getting a degree? If you don't have a degree, you don't get a well-paid job. How we have reduced 
the value of our lives and our education to such a low level. Society has. So, my concern is to raise questions in the minds of people and say, what is the purpose of whatever we are doing? What is the purpose? And I hope through this talk and through this discussion we can pursue this matter further. Thank you for listening. Yes, please. Big cities in India. Uh, the, the problem is that big cities everywhere, it, whether it is New York or Calcutta or Tokyo or London or Manchester, uh, they have something in common, which is life based on the economic system. So, Bombay and Calcutta are not that different than what you see the cities in the West. Although, even in big cities in India, the family life is still quite strong. The, the joint families or extended families, even in, in Calcutta you will see big families of 20, 30, 40 people living in one big house, sharing everything. Whereas in the western cities, life is much more lonely, much more individual-centered. We have, in the west, I think, uh, if I am, as I have understood the western uh, society, there is a strong sense of individualism, which has its good side, because uh, each individual being responsible to himself and herself is uh, something important. But also it is important to see the individual in the community, in the society. Now that part is a little bit missing in the West. Whereas in India, the sense of individualism is missing. We, we, are, we grow up as members of the family. And we don't quite understand and develop our own personal interests or personal aspirations. So maybe something we could learn and develop a little bit more personal aspiration. Because I'm always looking for a combination of things rather than one extreme or the other extreme. I would say cities should be smaller, not as big as even Bristol, which I think is quite a big city. Cities should be smaller. Cities should be interspersed with a lot of natural environment. Wilderness, big area of trees, groves, gardens, parks, animals, wilderness. If the city is interspersed with some nature and environment, then cities will be much more uh, ecologically sustainable and much more enjoyable and much more healthy cities. So that is one thing I would like. The second, as I said, uh, city should be smaller. So everywhere in the city, people should be able to walk. So you should be able to walk to your university, to your shops, to your station, to your church, to whatever, wherever you are going. It should be possible to walk or bicycle. So you don't have to have cities full of cars. 
So cars should be restricted to only when you are making a long distance journey and there is no public transport. Public transport should be encouraged and increased. So more railways, more buses, but if there are places where you can't get, then you can use cars. So between the cities, use of cars could be, at least for the moment, uh, uh, acceptable. But cities should be free of cars so that people can meet each other, say hello and, and, and enjoy life and enjoy cities. So that would be another uh, approach. The third one is that near the city there should be farms, various farms. So uh, milk, vegetables, various kinds of food stuff which you require for a city like Bristol or Bath or whatever, Cardiff. That food should come from the surrounding farms rather than coming from far away. So that would be the bioregional approach. So if you can bring these elements, then I think city has a place in our society. Like rural areas have a place, cities have a place. Because you can have certain amount of theatre, music, culture, shopping, certain amount of life which city offers is very good. If that was not there, you wouldn't have cities. You can't have Bristol University in Heartland. Because for a university, Heartland is too small. So you can have city. But at the moment, cities are overgrown, overcrowded, polluted, no nature, no trees, no wilderness, no ponds, no heat. I mean, London, to some extent, was lucky. No more, but was lucky. When it was a smaller city, Earlscourt used to be a village in itself. Camden Town used to be a village in itself. Hampstead used to be a village in itself. And then they could communicate, and Hampstead had heat. Richmond had a big park. Even now, you have beer in Richmond. But London has grown too much in the last 20 years. When I originally first time came to London, it was much more um, livable place than it is now. All these skyscrapers and so much fume and so much traffic. So, city has a place and with some common sense, we can make cities more humane and more human and more enjoyable and more ecological. Yes? This kind of city. The first step is to, to develop the idea that we need to have cities which are more ecologically sound. Once that idea is there, an idea has to be widespread. Uh, last, uh, since the war, in the last 30-40 years, the idea was economic growth. That was a prevalent idea. Everybody thought we have to grow, grow, grow. Big supermarkets, hypermarkets, everything in one department store. You go in, you get everything there. That was the prevalent fashion. Now, in the last five, six years, ten years at the most, the ecological, environmental ideas are gaining ground and becoming more popular. People are questioning, is this the way we want to live in city? Are we enjoying it? Are we happy? Is it comfortable to live like this? We don't have to live in crowded and polluted cities. So idea is the first thing. Once you have these ideas, then you can have renewable energy, you can have um, city farms, you can have various things. Planners will start to think and architects will start to think and um, organizing people who are organizing business and uh, all other things, they will start to think. So I think idea, first of all, idea has to be developed, 
spread, talked about, discussed. So we are in early stage, maybe in 10-20 um, years, in the next century, all these uh, high-rise buildings and so on in many cities, like they are changing in Birmingham. They built this, I can't remember what they call it, bull ring or something, in Birmingham. They built it. Now they don't like it. And they are trying to pull it down. They built something called Department of Environment in London. They are pulling it down. It's the most unenvironmental building that there was. And now they are pulling it down. In every way, it's energy consuming, it's unecological, it's uneconomical in every way. So, it, these buildings can be pulled down and many cities now in France, in, in uh, Austria, also in Germany, in Holland, many cities are becoming center part of the city only for the pedestrians. No cars. That's a very good movement. If you can have large chunks of Bristol only for pedestrians, that would be wonderful. I think it would be even good for shoppers, shopkeepers and, 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 and uh, uh, shoppers. So I think that would be a very, very good approach to go. So we have to develop these ideas. Start a group to discuss in Gaia society you have here. Discuss these matters. Bring more people in and, and say what kind of city we want to create. In five years, ten years, we will have a different kind of city. Um, in the present political situation, I don't understand how ideas of bioregionalism can come about. Um, we've got the opposite at the moment with unification of countries in Europe, better communications and transport. Ideas of bioregionalism don't seem to be prominent in any politicians' minds at all. That's right. In fact, in the next election, none of the political parties represent any ecological viewpoint whatsoever. That's so how can these changes really come about and how can change your ideas? I mean, it is very difficult to say how change comes about, any kind of change. But uh, other, other than people starting to change their minds, if you take Eastern Europe, if anybody had thought of that there will be no more Soviet Union, people would have said, you are a fool, you are a daydreamer. And now there is no Soviet Union. There are small, small 15 nations. Eastern Europe is same. Uh, there was an, one new nation uh, became member of the United Nations, which had only something like 300,000 people. So, I, I mean, Switzerland is a very good example of bioregion. They have 22 cantons and very, very autonomous. They are quite autonomous. I was in Switzerland last year and I was quite impressed. So, because of the mountainous sort of uh, geographical situation, it is very difficult to go from one valley to another. So they are quite self-contained and self-sufficient and they have quite a lot of political power. So I would say if there is enough groundswell from people, the change comes only from bottom up. Politicians will follow. Change will come from you and me. When enough people have started to um, uh, vote differently, eat differently, wear differently, travel differently, use ecological means of living, people will say, oh, people are changing. We have to address these issues, otherwise they are not going to vote for us. So my belief is that it has to come from people. And you starting Gaia Society here, and there are many similar, every university should have ecological societies of this kind. 
so that discussion and then you are going to make the world tomorrow all these politicians will go and you are going to be the leaders of tomorrow so if you have ideas which are more sustainable and more Gaia oriented you will bring them about in the society and change always takes 10, 15, 20 years you can't make overnight change what, what role do you think um, science and technology has to play in a holistic view? It is very important that we should have scientific approach to things. But science does not need to be reductionist and mechanistic. Science can be holistic. And science can also take account of non-scientific values. Science should not become dictatorial to say if something cannot be measured, cannot be tested, cannot be um, sort of proved, then it does not exist. I mean that is too much arrogance of scientists and science. So I would say scientists have to become a little bit humble and say there are certain things, physical things, which you can measure, you can add, you can, you can test, you can prove the rational approach. But there are other things of life which you cannot measure. So science and spirituality have to go together. So if, and there is, there is a new movement in science, for example David Bohr, for example Fritjo Capra, there's a new physics, the chaos theory. There are various other movements in science which are looking towards a holistic approach so that you are not sort of narrow-minded scientist. Only uh, what can be measured and what can be tested is true. And what cannot be measured is not true. I mean that kind of approach is I think very old-fashioned, although it's still prevalent in our society. But I think that is not ecological. If we can create that kind of holistic science which has spiritual values, science and spirituality going together, then I think science has a very important role to play and it has an important place in our lives. I would not like to see a society which is totally getting rid of science. Technology, again, it depends on values. What kind of values we have? Why we want a particular kind of technology? I mean, a bicycle is a good piece of technology. Very good, ecologically sound if bicycles can be made. I mean, today in one of the discussions uh, in the afternoon, uh, somebody was telling me, I didn't know about it, there is a car manufacturer in England called, a car is called Morgan. Have you heard of Morgan car? They make, they have been in business for 50, 60, 70 years, I don't know how many, and they make 12 cars a year. Is it 12 cars a year? Is that correct? Something like that. Very few cars. And everything is made by hand, properly, durable, lasting. I think that's a very ecological approach. So I'm not against technology per se. Technology, like science, has a place. But it should be kept in its place. And not, should not be allowed to dominate every sphere of life. If that can be done, then technology is not appropriate. So developing 
indigenous local technology is a very good thing and human scale technology rather than um, technology dictating human beings human beings being in control in charge of technology so that is a very big shift at the moment I think technology rules and human beings are almost like sort of slaves we have not abolished slavery with a new kind of slavery which is technological machine slavery if you go in large factories human beings have no control they are just standing there conveyor belt and doing what technology dictates to do now that is not good I would say technology per se is not bad appropriate human scale and human controlled technology is fine not the kind of technology we have today yes please um, as you set up your own school have you got any advice for anyone who's, who's going to set up some sort of uh, school out of the mainstream of education did you come across any really big problems um, the biggest problem is money when you are starting a school our idea with, with the small school in Heartland is that it should be a community school and it should not be a free paying public school as there are many in England if it is a community school where any child whatever their background whatever their financial situation can come without any restriction without any selection intellectually or financially anybody who lives in Heartland is entitled to come to that school then how do you finance it this is the biggest question I mean there are people in Bristol who would like to start a school I have, I have, I have heard there are people in Bath who would like to start a school actually there are two schools have started uh, on the uh, line or on the ex uh, seeing the example of our school in Heartland one in Liverpool one in Derbyshire but many other people come to us and say we would like to start a school which is holistic which has ecological principles which has uh, spiritual principles but how do you finance it how do you support it so that is the one big problem we are campaigning to persuade the government says that there should be choice in education but what is the choice where is the choice choice is like mr ford saying uh, to uh, people that you can choose any car from my factory as long as it is a black car that's the choice you can choose any school as long as it is state large comprehensive um, with testing at every certain stage national curriculum everything straight jacket educational system choose it whichever you like what kind of choice is that so we are saying that if you really believe in choice then you should allow parents to start their own school you can send your inspectors you can check that they are clean they have toilets they have proper kitchens they are teaching English they are teaching math they are not illiterate they are passing their exams all those basic uh, um, needs can be checked and inspected but after that parents should be allowed to run their school in the way they would like and there are examples in Denmark for example schools can be started by parents if 20-30 parents get together and start a school 80% of finance by law comes from the state we have been raising money from many sources 
And one of our scheme is to ask people, invite people to become a guardian of the small school. So if you become a guardian of the small school, you either raise or from your own pocket contribute, donate 250 pounds a year for the small school. So if we can get 200 guardians, then we can finance the school. But it is not going to happen for every school. How many people have magazines like Resurgence and can make an appeal through Resurgence and say, please become a guardian. We have this organ and we are getting a lot of guardians. Uh, so ultimately our campaign is to persuade the government to allow parents to start their own schools. But in the meantime, it's a struggle. But if there's enough determination, where there is a will, there is a way. If there's enough determination, people can start their schools. Set examples. It will happen. There may be some work, some sacrifice, but schools can be started. And we have been able to run the small school for 10 years without charging fee and without getting government grant. So we raise money. We have, um, every month we organize, uh, or every term sometimes, but every month sometimes also, we organize a dinner party where parents cook, children also join in cooking and serve. Like they, they dress nicely, like waiters, uh, just to make a big sort of fun and, and celebration. They dress in white shirt and so on and we light candles and we lay the tables with, with tablecloths and, and, and beautiful flowers on each table and we charge 10 pounds for dinner and people come very popular and we raise 500 pounds in one evening. So we do things of that kind. Yes please. What age? Age 11 to 16. Secondary school, huh? They do exams, GCSE exams. Our aim is to um, see the study, more roughly speaking, in two parts. One part, 50% of the time of curriculum, is devoted to academic subjects. So they have English, math, French, science etc., humanities, etc. So that's 50%. The other 50%, we say, is more sort of what is called non-academic curriculum, which includes a lot of environmental work, which includes a lot of practical work, like building, for example. Our children have built a whole new workshop for their woodwork because there was not enough buildings. So from laying the foundation, building the stone wall, putting this real slate, doing the plumbing, doing the electricity, everything. It took two years. A group of children and, and uh, teachers, they built the whole workshop. And now it uh, looks like a professionally built workshop. So that is part of your education. Every day, two children take a rotor to cook. And I think that's very important. It's a spiritually important, it's physically important, it's, uh, uh, it's um, uh, intellectually important. When you make children in charge of their kitchen, of the school, they feel in charge, they feel in control, they feel at home. And, and school should be an extension of home rather than a factory. 
model should not be a factory, but a home. So the atmosphere should be homely atmosphere. So every day fresh bread is baked by children, wholesome bread, salad, quiches, soups. They lay the table, they serve the food, they clear the table, they do the washing up. They feel in charge. They feel at home, as they do in the house, they do in the school. Before they go home in the evening, they clean the, uh, the floor, hoover the carpet, put the chairs back as they would like to see next morning. So it is not done for them by paid servants who will come and do the cleaning of the school. Children run the school. Uh, what they want to study? Whole week, every term in September when we begin the school, we spend asking children, what do you want to learn? Tell us and we will find a way of teaching that. So we make lists, we may turn into groups. Well, if you want to learn calligraphy, we'll provide. You want to Russian, you want to learn Russian, we'll provide. You want to learn Japanese, we'll provide. And you will be surprised how many and how much resources there are in the village of Heartland. People, parents, local people, there are poets living there, musicians living there, there is a, there is a um, German woman there, there is a, a Japanese woman there. I mean, we go to them and say, look, would you like to spend half a day, one day, with some of our children, teach Japanese, because some children want to learn Japanese. You don't have to have a professional teacher uh, approved and trained to come and teach Japanese. You can teach Japanese if you speak Japanese. I learned English not at school. I learned it by being in England. I picked it up. I make a lot of mistakes. I make grammatical mistakes. I miss B and A and so on, which I don't have in India. Doesn't matter. I learned it. I can communicate. I can stand up and speak. So you don't have to have a professional teacher for everything. So there's too much professionalism uh, given too high status. Why not bring education to children where they live? so that they can walk to the school, they know the teachers, they know your building, they know the library, it's any time open, you can go into the school whenever you like, weekends, evenings, homework, you don't have uh, sort of uh, peaceful atmosphere in the house, you can go to the school. Always open, we never lock the school. Library is open, we never fear somebody's going to steal a book, uh, um, Encyclopedia Britannica, what will we do? Lock it. It doesn't matter. It's better to lose a book then lose your trust in children. So we keep it open. Every day, evening, morning, weekend, children come to the school. They can use the hall to play, to, to have games, to do the experiments, anything. So school should be a homely place. The purpose of education is to free the child. True freedom, not freedom of superficial kind, but inner freedom. To free the child, free from fear. What do you give them vegetarianism? <laughs> this is not um, one of the. This is maybe a fifth, fifth thing after bioreasonalism, maybe vegetarianism. I am a vegetarian because I was born a vegetarian, and my parents and grandparents and my family has been a vegetarian family for the last 1600 years. Long, long history. Six, 1600 years ago, some Jain monks, monks of Jain religion, came to our village called Os. Before that, 
my family was um, a warrior caste family. They became soldiers and they uh, worked for the king of our, our area. Then this uh, monk came and he, or they, these monks, they believed in total non-violence, not harming any creature as a religious principle, respect and reverence for all life. And uh, the village, the whole village of us, including my family, were very moved and inspired and they all decided to um, become Jains. And so our caste now, a sub-caste, is called Oswal, meaning people of Os village. And we are all Jains now. So our uh, ancestors, my ancestors, had to go to the king and say, we have changed our minds and our, con uh, our religion, and now we are Jains, and we believe in non-violence. So first of all, we cannot remain soldiers in your army. Will you allow us this conscientious objection, so to speak? And they were allowed. And the other thing was vegetarianism. So my family and the old Jains are vegetarians. Vegetarianism in India is very, very uh, prevalent and popular. And I feel that vegetarianism is also very ecological. In order to feed one human being, if you take meat, then you have to give something like 10 pounds of uh, grain produces, I'm roughly speaking, um, I'm not scientifically tested theory, but something like 10 pounds of grain will produce 1 pound of animal meat. And one uh, 10 pounds of animal meat will produce one pound of human meat, maybe, in human body. There's some sort of calculation. So the colossal amount of land is required to grow meat, to feed people. So you import tremendous amount of grain from Africa, from other third world countries, South America, and so on. All these hamburgers are made with burgers, beef burgers, um, with cattle. Cattle also produce methane. And that is very dangerous for ozone layer and for, for global warming and so on. The founder of Gaia Hypothesis, James Lovelock, says there are three most unecological things uh, in the world. One is um, car, which produces a lot of um, pollutant. Car, cow, also produces a lot of methane, and chainsaw, which cuts down all these rainforests and trees quickly. You go, one, two, three, ten, twenty, hundred trees, gone. Whereas if you had a hand saw, it takes time. Anything done slowly is not so damaging. Speed is one of the greatest um, curse of modern society. Speed. We always want to get quickly there. Everything we want to do quickly. Yesterday. Everything should be done yesterday. Slow. Like small is beautiful, slow is beautiful. So, 
cow, chainsaw and car. These are the three things which James Lovelock believes are most unecological. And therefore, if you cannot become total vegetarian, at least you don't have to eat meat for breakfast, meat for lunch, meat for dinner, three times a day. Or you can perhaps have a once a day or one every second day, other day, alternative day, or once a week, something like that. Or perhaps you can have fish but not meat. Or perhaps you can have chicken but not beef. You can modify to be more ecological so that you tread lightly on this earth and not like a, like a, what's a bull in what shop? China shop. But human beings are like bulls in China shop at this moment. The industrial human beings. We, we take so much for granted and destroy so much just to have a little temporary pleasure of eating, uh, eating a, a beef burger. We don't care if the rainforests are destroyed. So treading lightly on the earth, taking care of the earth, that earth will last longer, human beings will last longer, the relationship will be better, and we can enjoy the bounty and the fruit of the earth if we take it little and replenish it. You take, take and take. That's not good. You take but give back. Something return to the earth. Like if you go to stay in somebody's house, say somebody has a cottage in Wales, and says your friend, says, Oh, I've got a cottage, why don't you go and spend your weekend or have Christmas in my cottage? You arrive in this cottage. There's a fridge in it. The butter, the milk, there's a cheese. And your friend has said, Oh, you can help yourself, whatever you like. Soap, whatever is there. You can use it. But when you are going, leaving the cottage, what do you think? Oh, my friend will come and he will find empty fridge. That's not good. There was one pound of butter. I should put two pounds of butter back. That's kind, generous to your friend. In the same way we should think of the earth. We are guests on this earth. We are guests. We should behave like good guests. Not just take, take, eat, eat, eat and then make um, uh, all this colossal amount of waste. Like this, dumps. When you go on a dump, how was New York? The biggest mountain uh, one can see is in New York of all this waste years and years and years. So if we cut down one tree, we are taking like a pound of butter from this earth. We are guests. We cut down one tree. After we cut down one tree, we should think, but before that I do anything else, I should plant five trees so that other guests coming, next generation coming, will have trees. There is a very beautiful story uh, Gregory Bateson used to tell when they built uh, is it King's College, I think it's King's College in Oxford and they put beautiful beams they, when they built the college they put wonderful big oak beams when they put those beams at that time in the forest of Oxford farms Oxford University farms they built, they planted new oak so that when that 60, 70, 80, 100 years later, when this beam is weak and needs replacing, there is a reserved oak waiting to be replaced. Now that is wise thinking, isn't it? Like a good guest. 
One day, professor of King's College called the forester and said, look, this beam seems to be going a little bit and we need to replace it. And the forester said, yes sir, I knew that one day you will ask me for this. At such and such place, there are oak trees planted for the, and reserved for the beams of King's College. That is the attitude that we need to develop. Then, there's a plenty. Mahatma Gandhi said, there's enough in this world for everybody's need, but not enough for anyone's greed. Need will be met and fulfilled. I mean, just imagine you plant one apple tree, year after year, year after year, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of apples you get back from one seed. So nature is not mean. Nature is not mean. Nature is bountiful, generous, gives, gives and gives. But we are too greedy. We just take, take, take and destroy. So if we can become good guests and replenish the earth, then we should be alright.